Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 122, and today's guest is Brandon Gell, founder and CEO of Clyde. Product protection is one of those things that you really don't think you need until you actually need it. Well, Clyde is disrupting this industry with a radically different approach, and it is a massive market which currently stands at $44 billion. The company's platform is making it easy for retailers to offer product protection plans online. It is not only an opportunity to increase revenue, but through their platform and approach, it is a way to drive customer loyalty at the same time. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Brandon's foundational years and his experience at Venture for America, the aha moment that led him to start Clyde, and how they got the company started, including a great story about a hard decision to say no, which was the best decision for the company, all the details on Clyde in terms of the complexity of their platform, and how they are building a better experience for consumers, advice for first-time founders raising capital, his thoughts on hiring in terms of the first layer of employees at a company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, have you checked out our YouTube channel? It is loaded with lots and lots of great content from our interviews with founders, executives, and investors. You'll find lots of snippets of advice shared from these podcast interviews, plus our popular Inside and CXO briefing series. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Brandon. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about in terms of uh, the great things you're up to with Clyde. But before we get into that, let's talk about your background. I always like to start from the earlier days of someone's upbringing and background. So what were you like? Where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Uh, you know, were, did you already have this entrepreneurial instinct at all? Yeah, so I grew up in Westchester, New York, so about an hour north of, of uh, the city. Um, and as a kid i mean i had like an amazing family living in the suburbs um worked, went to a great public high school uh how can i define myself as a kid uh i don't mean to sound i guess uh you know putting putting the cart before the horse but i, I was building things from a very young age i was i was a you know a big lego guy um a huge puzzle person uh i was a, a big fan of uh of um, riddles and, and stuff like that, which was kind of interesting for my parents, um, and uh, a huge skier as well. Uh, so I, from a very young age, was sort of like putting things together, um, which actually took me into college where I studied ar- architecture. And so you went to, to Middlebury. So why did you just, like, what, what was architecture? Was that that building of problem solving, putting pieces together type of... Yeah. Uh, well, sort of like the inverse of what I was doing as a kid, where as a kid I was taking things apart. So like we had a, a vacuum cleaner that like didn't work anymore. So I would just like take it apart and like not be able to put it back together afterward <laughs> at first. Um, or sort of like I remember my first TI, TI-89 or whatever that is, um, or it was actually my sister's. It broke and I took it apart and like tried to fix it. Um, that was the first computer you had? Um, that was the first like computer thing that I, that I had. Uh, the first time I saw like a circuit board. Um, and, uh, uh, so, so when I went to college, it was sort of the inverse of that. I was like done taking things apart and not really figuring out how to put them together. Uh, and, and wanted to focus more on going from sort of nothing, but with constructs, like what architecture gives you, um, and trying to build, build stuff. Now, while you're in school, you were part of this, um, amazing program that I definitely want to hear a lot more about. So. Uh, it was a solar decathlon experience called Insight. So what was that all about? 
Yeah, so the Department of Energy puts on a competition every two years. I don't actually know if they're still doing it right now, but essentially it's a competition for 20 teams, and those could be colleges, those could be, in some cases, countries, uh, that are going to build a 1,000-square-foot solar-powered house um, that performs in a competition for a month. Um, in this case, it was in Irvine, uh, California. So uh, we built a team, uh, applied, uh, and we were a really interesting team because we didn't have any um, actual architects because all of us were undergrad or there's no engineering program at Middlebury. Um, so we didn't have any official designers or any official engineers and we were going up against like Team China, which obviously had uh, engineers and architects. Uh, so it was this amazing experience to be a part of a team that, that really didn't have um, the resources that, that someone else would have, but being able to put together a, a beautiful home um, that we performed pretty well on. I think we got eighth. Um, so amazing experience. I was sort of like uh, the, the, the director of construction, essentially. So making sure that all the pieces f fit together um, and then we could put, it to, put the house together in California in, in, a, in less than a week, uh, which is obviously a massive challenge. And there was a substantial budget behind this too, right? Like this wasn't an, an easy. Yeah, so we had a, uh, it, was, it was a one and a half million dollar budget. So it was pretty substantial. But also when you think about building um, a house in, in Vermont, which is where Middlebury is, shipping it across the country uh, on trains uh, and then putting it back together uh, in California, um, it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not that substantial. So we still had to be really careful with, with what we spend our money on. Thankfully, we had um, all uh, student volunteers. Uh, so we weren't paying anyone's salary except for people that were like running the cranes. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it, was an, it was an amazing experience. Absolutely. And that was really my first of, of many experiences throughout college of, of uh, just taking an idea and, and, and making it happen. And, and what, like, what do you think that experience tell you as far as uh, you know, managing a team? Because there was a whole team of students that you were managing during, as construction director. Yeah, so I think that it actually is very applicable to, to my situation right now. So I'm one of the youngest people at our company. Um, and when I was uh, at the, so when I was building Insight uh, at Middlebury, I was a freshman uh, and most of the team was uh, all seniors. I actually went to Middlebury because I knew that we had gotten into this competition and I wanted to be a part of the team. So um, it was, uh, you know, pretty interesting experience of like landing at Middlebury, um, not really having uh, been part of the, the actual like application process because it happened the year before me but um, really like inserting myself and just, I don't like demanding respect, I think is like a little bit too aggressive because I was a freshman amongst seniors and we all remember what, what that's like. Um, but uh, just more proving that, that I could um, have, a, have a pretty serious impact. Um, and, and I think that ended up happening. Now the common theme for this um, is you know, entrepreneurship and building things and being part of companies that are trying to build hopefully something lasting and, and great. So, uh, you know, you got involved with Venture for America, which is this whole program. So talk about what that is and then the experience you gained through, through that program specifically. Yeah. So I was studying architecture um, and I was, I was building these, these like physical things. I also had a couple other projects where I, I attempted to build a tree house. Um, and also I, I renovated a school bus with a friend. Um, and all of my experiences were building physical things. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I also studied architecture. So I knew I was entering, um, about to enter the job market and essentially only had skills in sort of design. Although um, I knew that my skills were much far broader than that. But to, so, to an outside uh, person, it kind of just looked like I was like a builder. I built stuff, designed and built stuff. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to be an architect because uh, I, I just thought it was a little bit too pigeonholing for me because um, I was interested in industrial design and graphic design um, and, and obviously just like organization in general. Um, so uh, I, I found Venture for America. I don't remember how I, I, I stumbled upon it, but I, I, uh, I came to learn that I actually knew multiple people that were a part of it, not out, not in Middlebury. Um, and it was the perfect thing for me. It was um, an organization of, of people who loved building stuff the type of people that you didn't need to like go ahead and like wake them up in the morning when you needed to get up early for like a sunrise hike or something. <laughs> Everyone was like going to be up before you. Uh, and uh, I decided to go down that, that path. Um, although I did, I say decided, but it was the most challenging uh, uh, interview experience I ever had. So what, what did you actually work on while you're part of that program? So I worked for a small company uh, in Columbus, Ohio, that built a 3D scanner. So kind of the inverse of a 3D printer. And I did really cool projects for them. My, my job was essentially to uh, take this piece of technology that we had made, we were a team of four, um, and uh, show the world what we could do with 3D scanning. So I did a really cool project where I scanned all of the, the, um, the brewers in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and turned them all into tap handles. Uh, and then had like a big nonprofit uh, uh, come in and and throw an event for us where all these brewers came and we had like free beer with their like tap handles and um, another really cool project where uh, we scanned all the shins of the Columbus crew, uh, which is the MLS team in, in Ohio, uh, and uh, made custom shin guards for them. And that that's actually grown to be a pretty big project for, for the business. Um, so that was that was an amazing experience, and that's actually where I was inspired to start Clyde, uh, too. Per, yep. So perfect segue. So so what yeah. what was that you know aha moment that you're like okay th this market is uh, you know needs a better way. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's a great question because 3D scanning and insurance definitely don't have an option. <laughs> um, so I was uh, working for this company, Knockout Concepts, and we were. Uh, essentially trying to spin up sort of like an, the e-commerce version of our, our site before that we were B2B. So I was integrating Stripe, I was integrating Affirm, um, and our customers were coming to us and saying, we love your product, but like it's breaking in the field. We had people that were using this like at oil rigs, um, sort of in, in like to scan gas lines, um, and they were breaking the, the product, um, either by mistake or it was breaking itself. So they came to us and, and were essentially like, we are looking for some sort of insurance on the, on the product because it was fairly expensive. Um, and uh, I had had this amazing experience in the FinTech space, integrating a firm and Stripe. And being a team of four, it was, it was, uh, I took it upon myself to essentially go and try to find an insurance company to back our product. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure you kind of see where I'm going here. It was, it was an extremely challenging process um no insurance company would talk to us um or rather i don't even think that they knew that we were reaching out i don't know if they monitor their their emails 
Um, but it was impossible to get in touch with these large insurance companies. And then smaller insurance companies, uh, we could sort of like figure something out, but it was like a six month process. Um, it was entirely over email. They had no piece of technology to give us to actually like run our program after the fact. And I was really concerned with how they were going to treat our, our customers, as you could probably imagine. Um, so that's really like planted the seed for me that um, we could build a Stripe-like or an Affirm-like solution for the insurance space. So, so, so did you take that idea and like, how'd you meet your co-founders, Josh and Nick? Yeah, so, uh, I, so I, I took that idea and I sat in it for about three months um, and I just did a ton of research. I was asking a lot of local businesses if it'd be something that they'd be interested in. And uh, I ended up running, uh, I was at a party in New York, uh, a going away party for a friend and I ran into Nick. And Nick is an old friend of mine from kindergarten actually. Um, and I started telling him about what I was working on. And uh, he essentially was like, you should talk to my brother. My brother is, is, a, is a much better developer than I am. Um, or rather much more experienced and uh, he's kind of looking for his, his next thing. So that kicked off my conversation with, with Josh and Nick, they're, they're brothers. Um, we all grew up in the same town and uh, uh, that led to obviously them, them joining the, the company and then uh, uh, working for about three months, just part-time uh, building an MVP. And then uh, uh, Josh quit and then Nick quit about two weeks after him. Cause it was just like, we need, we need you. Um, yeah, but I, I jumped ahead there a little bit. Yeah, but that was a total leap of faith. So, so in building that MVP, like, how did you figure out, uh, you know, how to build out, you know, a business model? You know, there's the tech. There's still the insurers that need to provide, you know, the the backing of the the warranty. So, how did you start to formulate that this is that there's something really there? Yeah, so I, I left my job in Columbus and I went to join the Venture for America Accelerator. It's, it's essentially a, a pre-accelerator and I was in Detroit. So I lived in Detroit for three months where I was really like figuring out how we were going to structure the idea, how we were going to structure the, the company. Um, and also we're building out essentially an MVP with Josh and Nick. At that same time though, we didn't have any insurance partners. So I was also figuring out how we were going to even get someone on the, those same businesses that I was trying to work with at Knockout, how we were going to get them in a room to discuss um, joining uh, uh, our sort of portfolio of insurance companies. Um, and ultimately that led to a really big meeting uh, between uh, Clyde and um, one of the largest insurance companies in the world. And I just sort of been like knocking on their door constantly to, to have a meeting with us. And finally they accepted. Mm. And uh, Josh and I went to a meeting in, in, in their office in, in the financial district and uh, had nothing to, to really show them. We didn't have a product, uh, but we walked out of the meeting and they offered us an investment and exclusivity. And uh, wow. we, we, <laughs> that's uh, amazing. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing moment where Josh and I were essentially like, okay, you need to quit your job and come build this. And also we decided in that moment that we shouldn't accept this deal. Mm. We actually ended up turning it down. Wow. Okay. Uh, why? So we, we made the decision really early on that we would rather have been a business that had non-exclusive insurance partnerships. Mm -hmm. We rather would not be a business at all um, if we were going to go exclusive. So we wanted to build non-exclusive partnerships um, because along the same lines of making banks compete, um, the, the end customer wins. 
And uh, that's the same thing that, that we wanted to, to do in the insurance space. Um, so we ended up turning that down, turning down a few other insurance uh, offerings for partnership and uh, uh, ultimately landing uh, upwards of six partners. And those ones that turned us down are now joining the portfolio. Wow. So it all worked out in the end as far as good to say no sometimes. It's hard to say no, uh, especially when offering you, you know, an investment in the company, but uh, you, you got to do what's right for your business and your future customers. Yeah, absolutely. And then it ended up pushing us back quite a bit, uh, but ultimately worth it. So how did you like even narrow down like insurance, right? That's such a broad category of there's so many different types of companies, size, specialties. So were you able to find like who are the specialty insurers that like focus on this industry or are the big ones, they, that's kind of like another layer of what they do. So that, that's the interesting thing about the insurance space. Insurance is a commodity. Um, there are a lot of companies with, with really, really big bank accounts um, that can actually back uh, the, 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 the product um, or the policy that they're selling. Um, but what we found in the space is certain insurance companies have different appetites for different types of risk. So some companies might love bicycles, some companies might love computers, some companies might love iPhones. Um, it, and, and they you know, subsequently also don't like other things. Uh, so by building this portfolio, we're able to, to offer the broadest range of coverage to all these different categories um, and even outside of, of specific product warranty um, while also offering the best prices. So how'd you come up with the name? I'm always fascinated with that question. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a great story for you. So I was, I was basically, uh, I was building um, a robot at Knockout Concepts that was automating a part of, of uh, my job. I was building it with, with someone else on our team. And uh, the, the point of the robot was to essentially calibrate the 3D scanners. Uh, and we had named it Clyde. And it was at the same time that I was like noodling around with this idea uh, and I always knew that I wanted to make it really approachable because insurance is, when you think of insurance, you don't think like, wow, that was a really amazing experience. Someone only files a claim when they're not happy about something. Um, so I wanted to put a, a name to the, to the face of the business um, and I wanted it to be something that's really approachable. And I also wanted it to be something that was uh, sort of uh, not confused the, the customer, but was, uh, uh, you weren't sort of expecting it. We weren't going to name the company like warranty something. Um, we wanted it to be, to be humanizing. So how, how big is this market for protection plans, warranties? I mean, like, you know, uh, purchases that I've made recently, um, you know, I, when I'm actually in person buying it, not just online, it's uh, Hey, would you like to buy the purchase protection for the office chair you just bought? Right. So it just seems like this is a category that must be um, either high margin for the retailers or it's just another uh, you know, opportunity to generate revenue. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's a massive, massive market. It's a, it's a $44 billion market. Um, we believe we can actually turn it into an $80 billion market with, with our platform. Um, but I think that you are hinting on some really interesting things, which is basically every big box store does this because it drives a massive amount of, of revenue for them. Um, it's in some cases their largest margin product. Um, and I think the issue that you run into there is sort of the consumer view of this space is not necessarily fantastic because it's being run by these insurance companies that don't provide a good experience for end customers. So it's really challenging to file a claim 
or uh, you don't even know where your contract lives. You just got like a piece of paper with a receipt that said that you bought something and then you threw out that receipt and you're like, I just literally burned $5. Um, so it's, it's the exact reason why um, this market drives so much revenue for retailers and also why insurance companies have built such a bad experience around it is why Clyde exists. So it's to enable more businesses to be able to actually drive revenue from it because it can be a really good thing for their business, but also to make it a really good experience for end customers so that this, this piece of insurance is something that they actually can use rather than um, throw away a receipt. So how does the, like, let's, let's fast forward to your business today. So how does everything work? Like as far as working with your you know, customers and then they're working with their consumers that are making purchases. Yeah. So Clyde is a, a, a sort of full stack platform. Um, it's comprised of four different pieces. Uh, the first is our internal tool. Uh, so that's what we use to manage our, all of our partners. Um, it's a really powerful tool for matching millions of SKUs with a portfolio of insurance companies. Um, it is a partner dashboard. So that's what our merchants use to actually manage their program. And that's what they also use to integrate with different e-commerce platforms. So we have extension plugins and SDK uh, that you can use to get up and running really easily. Uh, and then we have a, uh, a front-end widget. That's what actually does the offering to the end customer. Um, and then the last piece is the end customer dashboard. So that's what makes it really easy for a customer to be able to go to one place to see their contract, to file a claim, to track their claim, all sorts of things that make this experience really good for an end customer. Is that your question? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, so it just sounds, you know, simple as it should be, but so how do the insurance companies are, how are they able to, you know, look at a SKU and make a decision on what to offer for, for the warranty at the price point, de-risking their, you know, yeah. exposure. We work with our insurance companies to essentially understand what it is that they want to take on risk for. So different categories. And then Clyde actually goes ahead and assigns that risk uh, that category of, of uh, contract to a product category. So we're the only, actually the ones that are matching it, but we work really closely with our insurance companies to curate the type of risk that they want to take on. And the one thing that you promote on your website is, you know, Clyde ensures customer lifetime value. So, so what's your, what's the meaning behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, that, that is our core offering. Um, of course, it drives revenue and things like that, but we found that uh, the the actual so using our platform and offering these sort of this sort of coverage, um, the revenue that you generate from lifetime value is actually far greater than the revenue that you generate just by selling a contract. So what we mean by that is a customer is going to buy a product of yours, um, and they're going to hang on to that for a year, but ideally they're using it for many years to come. And the experience that they have when it stops working or something goes wrong with it, or they break it themselves is such that they just get to keep using it, um, using the, the actual product themselves. So let's take a, 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 we work with a company called Evo Gimbals. They make a, a gimbal that is obviously prone to breaking because people are like using it on runs and stuff like that. Um, if, if someone actually buys a contract on that, when they break it, if they break it, what Clyde is going to do is actually replace that item for them. So we're gonna guarantee that they're gonna to continue to use that same item um, and, and use it by purchasing it from the same retailer. So now that merchant has just 
not only bought, uh, sold a contract on that product, but we've then repurchased that product for that customer. So they get to keep using it and they get another sale. So that's what we mean by lifetime value. It's making sure that your customers are staying yours for as long as possible. And such a better experience, right? So like I always tout Apple, right? Like they just always do the right thing. If you have a problem with a product, they don't mess around. It's like, like, so, um, I had purchased Powerbeats wireless headphones a long time ago. And for whatever reason, like after six months, they would circuit out. I don't know if I was just sweating too much when I was running, but I'm like, well, these are sport, you know, wireless headphones. These should work. They just kept shipping me a new product every time. And then after like the third time, they're like, you know what? We're going to ship you the, the latest version, which was, you know, probably way more expensive than the, the headphones I had. And it was just a great experience where I would buy, you know, obviously any Apple product, but, you know, continue with the Beats line that they acquired. Yeah. And, and honestly, they're working in a very similar way. So um, they're using the money that they set aside for their limited warranty. So they sell you a product and the, the profit that they make from selling you that product, they set aside a small portion of it so that when issues like that come up, they can dip into that pool and send out another one without them actually losing money. So they're developing their own uh, insurance uh, pool for that exact situation. And in all likelihood, they're actually even offloading that to an insurance company. So the same experience that you had there where it was just like a given, you were going to have this experience because it's built into the actual warranty that you buy when you first bought the product. Um, we actually do that with some of our partners as well. So taking that sort of seamless experience where you didn't even buy a contract, but the business is doing the right thing and making that sort of like Apple experience in a box available to any, any business. That's awesome. Now is the goal to have Clyde, like an actual consumer brand that, you know, I'll have my Clyde dashboard where you said I could, you know, see all the different products that I have, uh, you know, the warranties for. Yeah. So uh, we, we are absolutely a consumer brand. So we are a business, our logo lives on our par partner's websites, very similar to how like a firm or bread or any other financing logo lives on a website. So uh, the business or the end customers know that they're purchasing a contract from Clyde. Uh, in, in sort of like in, in tandem with the business that they're actually pur purchasing their core product from. Um, we do have some things in our pipeline to, to actually leverage that, leverage building a relationship with end customers. But at the time right now, it is entirely, we're, we're a B2B to C business. Yeah. Now what's the current state of your business as far as uh, capital raised employees or whatever you can share? Yeah, so we've raised three and a half million dollars to date from some, some awesome uh, VCs in, in New York and San Francisco. Uh, we are 15 people, which is a, kind of a crazy thing to think about given that uh, earlier this year we were four people. And uh, uh, the business is, is doing great. We're, we're scaling our partnerships. Um, we, it's, it's, it's really exciting to be in the office and sort of feel the energy around um, the gears turning um, and, and the machine sort of starting to run itself. Um, and I think everyone, everyone at the company would, would sort of uh, echo that, that feeling. And what, what, I guess, you know, kind of a short term future outlook. I know you've got very large aggressive plans ahead, but uh, like what's the kind of the short term plans for, uh, for growth? Yeah. So um, I think you said it right there. The, the short term plan is, is growth. Um, that's the only thing that we're focusing on right now. Uh, every decision that we make at the company is is uh, is caveated by does this lead to our growth, and if it doesn't, um, it's it's tabled. 
Um, so we're, we're very growth oriented right now um, and are looking to raise our, our Series A uh, early next year. So uh, a lot of our, or all of our OKRs um, and, and our goals are, are, um, are centered around that, that singular uh, sort of point of, of change. Now there's a, there's a lot behind your business. Uh, so building a business, regardless of what you do is, is really hard. Uh, and leading a company is, is difficult. So, so what's been the, kind of the biggest challenges that you've seen that you've overcome in terms of, you know, building and, and leading a company? Yeah, I think that um, I have a couple different answers to that. I mean, one of my answers, it's, it's sort of with two different mindsets. One of the mindsets is um, being sort of the leader of, of a company. And also the other mindset is being a person that's just living on this earth that also happens to run a company and how do you sort of like navigate the two of them. Um, so I think the hardest part of, of building and leading a company is entirely around the people. So um, as the company scales, uh, it's very obvious that you cannot do everything uh, on your own as much as you may want to. So it is around structuring an environment that makes it so people have full ownership um, over, over their particular part of the business and being comfortable with yourself to say, they might do it slightly differently than me, but I trust them to, to get it done. Um, so I think that is honestly the hardest part of, 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 of running a company um, because it's assuming it's going well, it's inevitable um, and you'll run into it. Uh, sometimes for the better or for the worse. Um, on the personal side, I think that uh, the, the personal challenges of running a large company are around making sure that you're able to sort of close your computer um, and, and, uh, and recuperate and, and build your own life outside of the business, which is also a really huge challenge. Yeah, that's, a, that's like I've been hearing that feedback more and more of, um, you know, entrepreneurs recommending that, that, you know, you, you're obviously going to be consumed by your business because you're trying to build something and it requires a lot of time, effort, and energy, but it's also good to um, have a healthy outlook and um, you know, be able to, to disengage from time to time and hopefully recharge the batteries. Yeah, and ultimately it's significantly better for your, your business. Yeah. So who do you count on for advice? Like who, who, who do you see as like mentors? I'm sure, you know, the board of directors for your company provide lots of insight and, and great advice, but outside of that, like who, who do you count on for, for, you know, just figuring things out? Yeah. Uh, so we have uh, an awesome group of investors, some of which I've, I've developed pretty strong relationships with. Um, so Paul Strachman from Red Sea is actually on our board. Um, and he's just been an amazing person mm -hmm. to bounce ideas off of. Um, and to, to uh, make sure that we're, we're always on the same team. Um, Human Rodfar mm -hmm. from Expa is a, uh, one of our investors and is also um, a similar figure in my life, so someone that I can go to for questions um, and, uh, and, and to, to bounce ideas off of about the business. Um, and Dylan Richard, um, who was the founder of Modest, um, is, uh, is also a, an amazing mentor and, and friend to mine. Uh, um, more so on sort of a personal level and the whole idea of running a company um, uh, and, and what that leads to. So awesome support network of, of people, obviously in addition to my, my family being like that core support um, and all of them offer advice in, in various different ways. So you, you've raised capital. Um, what advice would you give to other first time founders on that experience of raising capital of, you know, uh, one, 
you know, you secured capital, which is, you know, a number one, because lots of founders go out and, and they're not able to raise money. And then two, like what, what did you learn about the process that maybe you didn't know, you know, kind of hindsight? Yeah. So I have some conflicting pieces of, of, uh, of advice. So I would say don't raise too early or even try to raise too early because it's a waste of time. Um, you should only raise money when you feel like it's something that you would invest in. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you've proven in, at least in the slightest way that you have something. Um, and then you'll find the right person to, to come and work with you. And the other thing that I'd say is it's never too early to start building those relationships. Um, so for us, we were far before anybody would invest in our business. I was out talking to investors all the time. And what that led to was me developing essentially a list of, of, of people that I kept in the loop over the course of six, eight months, six months to eight months before we actually raised. Um, so when we went out and raised and we had proven um, sort of that first thing that I mentioned, uh, people were ready to, to jump on it. So that's so important. I think people don't really understand the value of relationships of raising capital and how, you know, it's essentially getting married for hopefully, you know, an extended period of time that you'll be in this business together. That um, if you just all of a sudden decide, hey, we're raising capital, everyone come and check me out. Whereas, you know, you took the stance of let's build these relationships, keep people informed about your business. And then when you actually are serious about raising capital, that process is a lot, not simple, but uh, certainly the relationships are there. Yeah, and I think that's especially important for first-time founders like myself. Um, building those relationships and proving that um, it makes sense to invest in you is extraordinarily important because that's what's happening in these early stages. Now, you talked about hiring. You've grown the team a lot over this past year, so I'm sure you've learned a lot as far as hiring. Uh, so, so what advice would you give to others around building that initial core structure of your team? Because that's really on the, the foundation of what you're building the company around. Yeah, so we um, we made this really amazing decision. I'd say it's probably the best decision that we've made to date to bring on a guy named Jeremy Holloman. So he used to be the founder of a company called Urban Stems, or he still is the founder of, of Urban Stems, but um, he and the rest of the founders just sort of moved on to their, their next step. Um, and we knew that before we joined Techstars uh, last summer, we needed to bring someone onto the, the business that was able, gonna, that had experience doing this and was also going to be able to take on a lot of the operational load while the three uh, original founders uh, really just hunkered down and, and tried to figure out like how to build the product. And uh, uh, bringing Jeremy on was, was by far one of the best decisions that, that we ever made. So it enabled us to sort of like lift up our heads. Um, and I'd say that we had probably five other opportunities, five other people that we wanted to bring on that we thought we wanted to bring on that looking back would have been the worst people ever to bring on. So um, I think your first hire is, is going to turn into a co-founder essentially. And, and that is such an important person and remembering to not get, two in the weeds on what that person's job is, is really important because um, they're going to have a million different, different roles as, as will you obviously. Um, and then growing from there, it's just, it's making sure that you're bringing on people in these early phases that um, understand that they have ownership over what it is that they do at your business. Um, and if they don't feel like that, then ultimately they're not really going to work out because um no one has time to essentially tell them what to do. So that's, uh, 
that's I'd say the most important piece of hiring in these early phases. And was uh was Jeremy like referred to you? Like how'd you get connected with him? Because yeah, that he's got a very unique background where you know his startup was taking on one eight hundred flowers. I mean, it, like the complexity of you know they were working with farmers to actually you know get sourcing flowers direct to ship them to consumers. Uh, not a network of flower operators, you know, so just the complexity of the business that he already built was such a, a great find for you. Yeah, I mean, he's an operational mastermind. And I, uh, I think that Jeremy's a unique person where he was looking for his next challenge. And he knew that uh, he had sort of figured out how to do this very, very operationally heavy business. And he wanted to challenge himself in a different way, which is exactly the type of person that you, you need to find um, as sort of like a first a first hire, um, so going to the insurance space and focus on, focusing on technology was obviously not his background, um, but but given the type of person he is, and I think given the type of person that we've actually gone out and hired, um, it was a no brainer for him to be able to to pick it up and, and teach himself. Yeah. So what's uh, any uh, recommendations that you'd have for uh, any books that you've read that you think uh, really have, have helped you or uh, maybe podcasts that you listen to other than the Venture Fist podcast? Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, in terms of podcasts, I'm a pretty big podcast guy. I love Radiolab um, and Reply All. Uh, How I Built This is, is, is obviously a, a great one. Um, in terms of books, I read a lot of fiction. Um, so I, one book that I'm reading right now that I've been suggesting to everybody that's completely unrelated to sort of entrepreneurship directly is uh, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Uh, it's a great story about uh, two, two boys that are building a comic book business. Um, so kind of related to entrepreneurship. Um, I try to focus sort of on my book and podcast uh, consumption outside of uh, sort of self-help or generating sort of like ideas about how to run a business better because uh, uh, that's what I do every single day while I'm like living it. So my consumption of that stuff hopefully is uh, helpful, but also uh, sort of a, 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 it removes me from it a little bit. Yeah. It's good to be diversified because you're going to have, you know, you let different pieces of your brain, maybe rest or other pieces work and you never know where inspiration will come from. And like, that's self-admittedly like, some like, like I have so much room for improvement with that. Like, like, like I just really hard. the same, you know, like, but I love it, but it's still, I'm like, I should probably open my eyes to more, you know, reading fiction. Cause I'll just read biographies about entrepreneurs or something or um, the hard thing about hard things type of stuff. So, but uh, I don't know, someday I'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I, sometimes I feel the opposite way. Sometimes I feel like I really need to dive into to more of, of, of these, these books that, that I can actually like really learn from. Um, honestly, the, the biggest thing for me in terms of being a better entrepreneur is listening to other people's stories, which is why I love how I built this. And I think that that is the best way for me to really understand how to be a, a better founder, a better CEO, a better person. Um, because it's, it's, uh, it's real life examples of, of mistakes that were made or successes. Um, so I, I love that podcast. Yeah, I Guy Raz is my mentor. He doesn't know that. Yeah. But, but I like so last summer I was remodeling the basement so I, I was painting, you know, ceilings, floors, like just crazy amount of painting. Uh yeah. so I, I think I burned through almost every single episode of how I built this and it is just uh it's it's he's such a good interviewer and the guests he has are phenomenal. So uh, 
I definitely try to emulate uh, a lot of what he does. So yeah, definitely a good one. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great things that you've been up to at Clyde and, you know, all the best of luck. And hopefully that, you know, you are able to achieve, you know, these really, you know, high aggressive goals that you have in store for your business. Thanks, Keith. I appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.